At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? So we're going to go back into uh, the study of the end times, future things. We've been studying Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and one of the famed Bible commentators is named Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry wrote this enormous Bible commentary, but he describes this section of scripture that we've been studying as an intimate discourse between friends. I love that. I love that description, that what we're looking at is Jesus sitting down with his closest companions and having an intimate conversation about some of the most important things of life. And isn't that where life typically happens, across a meal or dinner table, as we walk, as we do life, as we go about day-to-day activities? Jesus was doing this for one very important reason. He wanted his friends to be prepared for what was ahead. He knew that this was going to be the last teaching opportunity he had with them before Easter week. He knew that lying ahead for him was this road to a cross on Calvary where he would lay down his life. And though he would always be with them, he wouldn't be with them in the same physical way that he was at that time. And he wanted them to be prepared. Prepared for what? Well, when we start off Matthew 24, it's with three questions. Lord, they asked the disciples, what will be the sign of your second coming, the end of this age and the destruction of Jerusalem? Jesus patiently answers each of their questions, but he drives home a very important point. He kind of shifts their focus from being concerned about the precision of the clock to being concerned about the readiness of their heart. He says, you won't know what day or hour I will come, but here's the question. Will you be prepared? Will you be ready? Over and over again, this is exactly uh, the question that we're forced to deal with. So, As we open our Bibles, what we will remember is that in Matthew 24, he told them all the details, all the galaxy-shaking, apocalyptic uh, uh, facts about his second coming and about uh, the end of the age. But then he begins to ready their hearts by telling them stories, stories that we call uh, parables. And what is a parable? A parable is simply a story, uh, an earthly story that has spiritual significance and gives us insight more particularly into the kingdom. The coming of the kingdom, the ethics of the kingdom, the way of the kingdom. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that the movement that he was starting was in no way like the other earthly revolutionary movements that they had seen before. It wasn't going to be through coercion or through force, but through persuasion that he would change the hearts of men. His would be a spiritual kingdom that had far different ethics and was on a totally different timetable as we would see. But as we saw in Matthew 25, verse number 13, where we left off last week, if you turn your eyes there, the urgency in his voice, he says this, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Get prepared. You don't know when it's coming. Make sure you are ready. 
But let me just say this, Jesus does not challenge them to get ready and to be prepared just to produce anxiety in their heart about these major events on the horizon. And isn't that the way that life normally is? Isn't that the way of the world that so often people tell us almost with these empty words uh, that we should be prepared for the major events of life without telling us how to be prepared? Let me ask you this. Let's go back in the way, way back machine for just a moment. How many can think back to their first day of school or maybe even college? And let me ask you the question, were you really prepared? I may say, no, I was not prepared. Or maybe you can think back your first day of work or new career. Let me ask you this, were you prepared? I look back on that moment and I'm surprised I still made it. I was so unprepared. Anybody look back and say, I was radically unprepared for what lied ahead for me, or maybe that's just me. Or maybe you who are married in here, can we go back to your wedding day? And let me ask you this question. Were you prepared for your wedding day? Uh, again, it's been by God's grace. I was not prepared. All I could keep thinking of when that preacher was uh, saying those words, kind of like a Charlie Brown teacher from the, the cartoons. I didn't hear anything. Um, I, all I kept thinking is, man, I'm going to have to feed her now. Up until that moment, her parents had been covering the tab, and now it was all on me, but some of you are far more spiritual than I am. Or, or let's think, those of you who are parents in here, think back on your first child and you're coming home with them. How many were prepared thinking back on it? I'm surprised my kids have made it. But the fact of the matter is so often we are told for these major life events, be prepared, be prepared, but we're not told how to be prepared. Jesus not only tells us to be ready, but he tells us how to be ready. These parables, we've looked at four stories after giving the details, if you will, the detailed account of when these apocalyptic events, these galaxy-shaking events were going to happen or how they were going to happen, rather. He then tells, tells them what being prepared looks like. And in today's story, the fourth and final story in our series of stories, he tells them this, that being prepared looks like diligence. What do you mean, Chris? What do you mean by diligence? Well, diligence is simply faithfully serving the master by investing the gospel into the lives of people that he's placed along your pathway until he returns. The challenge of the text is, are we diligent? Am I being diligent? Well, like all parables, it has various scenes. Every story has various scenes. We're going to walk through this parable of the talents. Parable of the talents. How many have heard this before? The parable of the talents by the show of hands. Many Christians have. One of the great mistakes, grave mistakes that's often made when teaching this parable is to rip it out of its context. It's not just simply a, a parable only about stewardship. It's a parable about readiness. Readiness for what? For the return of Christ. He is coming back again. And if you have put your faith in him, that gets you excited. But to know that the king of glory is coming back again, if you have not put your faith and trust in him, should cause you to lean forward in your seats, to pay close attention because he is warning us so that we won't experience consequences that we are not able to handle. 
Well, the first scene starts out in this parable about the talents in verse number 14. We'll look at verses 14 and 15, and it's uh, maybe uh, titled, The Distribution of the Talents. The Distribution of the Talents. Look at what it says. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, then he went away. Now, you could read that and easily breeze by all the questions that those two verses provoke, but if you read slowly, there are so many questions. For example, what is the it he's referring to here? For it will be like a man going on a journey. What is the it? Well, the it is the kingdom of heaven. Every parable is referring back to or telling us something about the ethics, the timing, and the way of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that Jesus is the king of, that he establishes at his coming. How do we know that? Verse number one tells us that. Verse number one of this chapter sets the context for the it. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like... So each one of these stories is to give us a sense of what the kingdom of heaven will be like. Another question that comes up, for it will be like a man going on a journey. Who is this man that's going away? Well, we don't have to uh, search too far to find out who this man is. This man is Jesus. He is preparing for Easter week. He's preparing for the ultimate sacrifice. And he knows that after that, he will be ascending and going to the Father. He's going away, but the story will unfold and you will see glorious news. He is coming back again. Well, it goes on to say that he called his servants. Who are these servants? Well, in the immediate context, in the immediate moment where he originally tells the story, it is his disciples who are sitting with him, his intimate friends, his closest companions, as they sit around and he shares from his heart, preparing them. But by extension, it is you and me who have believed in him. We are his servants. Why is that important? It's because every single one of us, our hearts should yearn to find ourselves in the text. Every single one of us should be asking ourselves, where do I show up in God's grand narrative of redemption? Where do I show up in scripture? And if you're looking for where you show up, this is one of the great passages for you to point to and say, there I am. I am one of these servants. He goes on to say that he entrusted to them his property. That's powerful as well. He entrusted to them his property. This was no debt that he was paying. He was not settling up wages. He was not giving them a loan repayment, but he was out of the grace of his heart, giving out of the abundance of his own wealth and possessions. Friends, if you understand that, that's enough to make you shout because that's exactly what salvation is all about. Out of the abundance of his grace, he gives us salvation. Salvation is not earned. It is not a matter of work or our resume. It is grace upon grace upon grace. How many praise God that he was merciful that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and he gave us out of the abundance of his grace. He gave us of his resources. And so what did he give them? Well, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. This provokes a couple of more questions. What in the world is a talent? 
We read this word and uh, it's evolved certainly in meaning. So let me give you a little bit of definition here. The Greek word here is talaton and it was a uh, form of Greco-Roman currency. Some would describe it as the largest form of Greco-Roman currency. Now stay with me for a moment because it was the equivalent of 20 years wages for the average Roman. Some who are smarter than me have done the inflationary math and they would estimate that in our current day that a talent would be worth a million dollars, the equivalent of approximately a million dollars. Can you imagine if someone just generously came up to you and out of the abundance of their heart and love and grace gave you a million dollars? How many would be pretty happy about that? We'd all be pretty happy about that. But this wasn't the first time that he talked about talents. And understand that a parable is a spiritual story that is giving us something, I'm sorry, it's an earthly story that is giving us something deep about spiritual meaning. He used talents before to help us to understand the weight of our debt to him. Keep your finger here, go back with me for just a moment to another time when he talked about talents, Matthew chapter 18. Just go back a few pages if you have a physical Bible or a few swipes if you have your phone. But Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, look at this story about talents. If a talent is worth a million dollars, consider what he says here. Then Peter, verse 21, came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Clearly, here's the context. Peter had been hurt, he was angry. In some ways, I think he was looking for a way out of having to forgive whoever hurt him, but the context is forgiveness. And he says, how many times do I have to forgive somebody for hurting me? Anybody ever ask this question, at least in your heart? How many times do I have to keep putting up and forgiving this person, maybe a spouse, maybe a child, maybe a friend, maybe a coworker or a boss, how many times do I have to keep forgiving them? And so then he asked Jesus a question. He thought he was super spiritual. Uh, he says, seven as many as seven times? I mean, you think that's pretty good, forgiving somebody seven times. Jesus uh, blows him away. He says, I do not say uh, to you seven times, but 77 times. I'm sure Peter was like overwhelmed. Verse 23, if he wasn't overwhelmed enough, Jesus tells another story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Consider that for just a moment. We'll come back to that. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, his master, the master rather, of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. Think about what I just said about the value of a talent and what Jesus' servants or disciples or audience would have heard. If a talent is worth a million dollars equivalent, 20 years wages, this man owed 10,000 talents. Do the math, that's $10 billion. Why would Jesus use such an astronomical number? 
Was it to simply overwhelm us where we couldn't follow the story? No, it was to drive home a point about our sin debt to God. We owe God more than what we could ever repay. You could have given this man 20 lifetimes and he still couldn't repay the debt. And neither could we. It was our sins that drove him to that cross where he had to die for us. But praise God, out of his pity, his mercy, his love, and his grace for us. He releases us from the debt. And I think that is praiseworthy. And he is worthy to receive our praise because of all that he has done. Praise God that he forgave me of my sin. And maybe you feel like your resume is so marred. Maybe you feel like you've messed up so much. I don't know if you've ever owed someone $10 billion before. But even if you did $10 billion worth of sins, what he did on Calvary is infinitely more valuable than $10 billion worth of sin and mistakes. You know, my background is in uh, investment banking and finance before I became a pastor, and I praise God that Jesus puts this little story in here and these stories, these monetary stories for guys like me so that I can understand and maybe even do a little calculation. And once my calculator fries out because the numbers are way too big, then and only then am I beginning to scratch the surface of how deep I was in sin. You and I weren't sick. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. But praise God, through faith in him and by his grace, he's brought us to life again, and he has given us life more abundantly. Let's go back to our story. Matthew 25, again, he entrusted to them various talents, Here's the question that we have to ask ourselves about this story is, how do we feel about the fact that different guys got different talents? You know, all of us are excited when we see the, the $1 million coming to us until we look over our shoulder, we see the next guy in line got $2 million. How you feel now? And then you look over your shoulder and see the guy after him got $5 million. And now you're starting to feel a little bit cheated. But the point here is not about money. The point here is about kingdom responsibilities. We don't all have the same level of kingdom responsibilities. You have your assignment, I have mine. The point of the story is not about dollars and cents, it's about faithful response to what he has entrusted to our care. No matter what your assignment is, we have to be faithful to it. So the first point in this story is that we need to respond rightly to what God has entrusted to us. Don't waste your time playing the comparison game. Don't worry about what somebody else has by way of responsibility. There are no superstars in this story but Jesus. Everyone else is just simply a supporting actor. Then the scene changes. It goes from distribution of the talents to the use of the talents. Look at verse number 19. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts. I'm sorry, let me go back. I skipped a verse. Verse 16. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he, and, uh, he made five talents more. Verse 17, so also he who had two talents made two talents more, but... He who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. We'll get to why he did that in just a moment, but I want you to see the first two. 
What was the first two responses? What's really interesting is that all three servants anticipated that the master was coming back again, but it didn't provoke the same attitude or actions in all three servants. Earlier today, I asked, how many of you believe that he's coming back again? And many hands went up. And how many do believe that, that he is coming back again? How many believe that? Well, just because you believe that doesn't mean it'll provoke the right action within you. It only did within the first two. And what was their actions? What was their attitude? It says there that they went at once and traded uh, with them. At once they went and began to reinvest what, what had been entrusted to them into the lives or into the hands of others. It was as if they uh, said, because the master is coming back again in an hour we don't know, there is no time to waste. Oh, for a church that has this heart, that there is no time to waste. My friends, let us not act as if there is much time to waste, but let us act with diligence and with urgency. The first two didn't waste time squabbling over who got what amount. They just simply said, let me reinvest back into the kingdom. Let me take this gospel that has been sown into my heart and let me sow it into the hearts of my children, my spouse, my family. Let me sow this gospel into the hearts of my coworkers. Let me sow this gospel into the hearts of uh, my neighbors, remembering that I've been placed for a purpose. Let me ask this question because I think it's the question that the text begs us to ask, and that is, who are you reinvesting the gospel into? Whose hearts, whose lives are you and I reinvesting the gospel into? And are we doing it with urgencies? There, there, there's going to be a, a number of responses to a text like this, but one of the responses is to recognize that none of us are relieved of the responsibility of having to invest the gospel into the lives of others. Notice that it wasn't just for the five-talent guy or the two-talent guy. It was for all of them. Every servant was expected to go and reinvest what had been entrusted to them. That same mercy and grace needs to be paid forward to those that God has placed in your lives. But then that one talent guy, he decided that I'm not going to move with a sense of urgency. I'm just going to bury what I've been entrusted with. Each one of us has been given a talent. Now, the interesting thing about this word talent is that it's evolved in meaning over time. It's expanded. Originally, it just referred to currency in the Greco-Roman world, but it was the currency that was made by entrepreneurs, by creative types that earned wages because of their creativity. So over time, it became a, 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 a connected to uh, not only the currency, the thought of currency, but the gifts and the talents that are used to be able to produce those uh, wages, that income. And so it is now that we think of it more by way of talent, entrepreneurial giftedness or creativity. And I think you can see it in an expanded way. I think you can see this story is talking about, yes, the resources that God has entrusted to our care, but I think you can see this story as talking about the giftedness that God has entrusted to our care as well. What are we doing with the giftedness that God has entrusted to our care? Let me just say this. Every gift, every talent is given from God. Every good and perfect gift, the Bible says, comes from the Father above. Every gift and talent has been given to us by God. Why? So that we might invest it, invest the gospel through those gifts, talents, and abilities into the lives of others. 
Well, then the scene changes from the distribution of the talents to the use of the talents to the accounting of the talents. He comes to settle accounts in verse number 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Again, much can be said about these first two servants, but I simply want you to see one point, and that is, in spite of the fact that they had different amounts, they both received the same reward. Because it wasn't about the amount, but it was about the attitude. Their attitude and their diligence was to be faithful in serving the master. They used what they had, and they reinvested it on his behalf. Don't worry about what you've been given. Don't squabble over that, but use it for the glory of God to the best of your ability. And both the five-talent servant and the two-talent servant was invited to enter into the joy of their master. How many want to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant? How many want to enter into the joy of your master upon his return? Well, my encouragement to you is fix your eyes on him, focus on being diligent with a thankful heart, and when he returns, you will hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. If every day you're waking up with the sense that there's no time to waste, if every day you're looking for opportunities to invest the gospel into the hearts of others on Christ's behalf, your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers, your kids, in formal settings and in informal settings, then I believe that when the master comes, he will find us ready. This, my friends, is what it means to be ready because he's coming back again. But then this one talent servant has to be dealt with. So look at verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you, uh, where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. It's so hard for me to read that portion of scripture. How many get a little bit ticked off by this guy? Anybody get annoyed besides me at this one talent guy? Because, you know, there's two types of people in the world. There are those who accept responsibility for their own mistakes, and then there are those who blame shift. This guy was a classic blame shifter. Instead of saying, you know what, I blew it. I didn't handle the moment right. I uh, misunderstood the seriousness of the moment. Instead of him doing what the servant did in Matthew 18, pleading for mercy, no, he blames the master. He has an attitude problem with the boss. He blames his master. And I want you to see this. It was his attitude that stopped him from productively, faithfully, diligently investing on the master's behalf. It was his attitude about the master that stopped him from serving the master. 
And again, this is one of those moments where we have to ask ourselves, who am I in the text? And far more often than not, in these stories of Jesus, we're not the good guy. We are not the hero, we're the villain. And when I read these stories, as tempted as I am to say, I'm that five-talent man, or as tempted as you and I might be to say, I'm that two-talent woman or man, the truth of the matter is, far too often we're that one-talent person complaining to God about what we think we were owed or what we should have received or how unfair he is to us. Listen, I know what it's like to go through loss, and I know what it's like to be angry at God, tempted to be mad at God when loss touches your life. When you lose a loved one and you're tempted to say, God, I feel that you are unfair, that this is not right until you remember it was out of the abundance of his grace and he gave them the talents in the first place. And so instead of being wrapped up over what was lost, what we should be rejoicing over is the years we got that we didn't deserve, but God blessed us with those years. It's easy to be angry with God when we lose a job or an opportunity, but instead of being angry with God over what we think we deserve, what we should have recognized, what this one talent servant should have recognized is that I didn't deserve any of it, but God gave it all to me out of the abundance of his grace. He hasn't been unfair. He's been abundantly gracious. That's what the five talent guy thought. That's what the two talent guy thought. But the one talent guy got caught up in, 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 in thinking that the master was somehow unjust and unfair. But I love the master's response. He doesn't even try to correct his opinion of him. Why waste time with that? Look at what he says, verse 26. But the master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. It was as if the master said, okay, we're gonna play this game, let's play the game. So let's just say I'm mean. Shouldn't that have provoked you to be even more diligent? If God is angry and the type of master that this guy thinks he is, man, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be caught lazy when he comes. But God isn't these things. He is the exact opposite. But we are left without excuse. That's the point. The point, my friends, is that we are left without excuse. God is good. He is the one that causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. Every day you wake up and there is sun shining, you praise God because that is a gift of life to you. Every day you take a deep breath and your lungs fill with air. No, that is the goodness of God. The problem with man is not the problem of evil. It's the problem of goodness. I know I deserve evil because of my sin, but here's my question that I can't figure out is why is he so good to me? And that's the question. Why is he so good to us? And each one of us has to process that question. But whatever your answer is, and I pray that you'll conclude it's because he's so loving, our response to his grace and mercy should be to invest the gospel that he has saved us with into the lives of others through the means of our gifts, our talents, and our abilities. Two more verses, verse 29, for 
to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast a worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's the point? Remember the return of the Lord. After a long time, he says, he comes back. I think he was trying to give a hint to his disciples that my return may take longer than you think, but you be faithful until I come back again. We're gonna worship God in just a moment. But there are two responses to this text. The first is to receive, to receive out of the storehouse of his grace the offer of salvation. If you have not done so, I want you to do so today. If you're in this auditorium, if you have not given your heart to the Lord, or maybe you did and you walked away, today you can come home again. And if you're online, it is just as much an offer to you as well. Please respond now. But the second challenge of the text is, how am I reinvesting the gospel into the lives of others this gospel that's been invested in my life. I wanna leave you with that challenge today. Call someone, text someone, set up a lunch or a dinner, but extend to someone the same invitation that God has graciously given to you. Remember, friends don't let friends go to hell. Today, we need to encourage someone to give their lives to Jesus. Stand with me all over this church. Let's pray and then we're gonna worship our King. Father, thank you for the reminder through your word, that you are gracious, that you are generous to us. Thank you for reminding us that you are soon coming king. And even now as we prepare to worship you, may our hearts not be tricked and fooled into thinking that somehow you're not a good master, but may we remember that you are good. Hosanna in the highest. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said a big amen. amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.